and welcome to Evaluand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. This week, we're chatting with Shari Smith about nonprofit evaluation and how to build a culture of evaluation, as well as music and its role in the evaluation process or how we just think about music relates to evaluation. I'm excited to have her on the podcast because she's going to be one of the plenary speakers at the upcoming AEA 2020 virtual experience from October 27th through 30th. So Shari, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here, Dana. Thank you. Before we start, could you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, how you got into evaluation, and what you currently do? Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate being here. Uh, Shari Smith, I'm with Evaluation Into Action. My first job, actually, in program evaluation was at the Northwest Regional Educational Laboratory, which is a mouthful. Gratefully, they um, rebranded, and now they're just called Education Northwest. But I worked with them for a few years, and it was great. There was just a range of different people there that did different methodologies for approaching program evaluation, particularly in the education field. By 2005, I was ready to spread my wings beyond education and started evaluation into action and have been doing doing that ever since. Well, that's awesome. So what, what prompted you to start your own business? I mean, it sounds like get away from education solely and, and broaden your horizons, but what else and how'd you get into that? Well, I really enjoy, I really enjoy the education work. Don't get me wrong. I love that. But I really wanted to do more than the education work. I really was excited about working more with nonprofits and foundations and helping them to build a culture of evaluation. And what really prompted me was more at a personal level. I had had my first child and by the, there was a lot of travel in this job, like a lot. And so by the time I had my first child was two, I was, and we knew we wanted to have a second, I was thinking there was just no way I was gonna keep up with this travel schedule. So I explored the possibility of leaving and um, doing program evaluation locally so I wouldn't be traveling all over the region. And so that worked out. I was able to jump and have been working ever since. So do you do most of your work in Oregon then? Most of it, but I've started to expand because, you know, we have so much access now to Zoom, to virtual platforms, to ways of doing the work without having to hop on a plane. So I am starting to do more national work and we're leveraging all the virtual tools that we have at our disposal now. Awesome. So has the the COVID pandemic, has that negatively affected your business? Or it sounds like maybe you were already kind of pivoting to doing more online virtual work. I was. And, you know, it's really interesting you say that because I was also starting to present more nationally all through, you know, virtually not having to fly anywhere. And COVID, I think, just slowed down all of my clients. You know, it slowed all of us down, right? We all kind of came to a dead halt in mid, mm-hmm. mid-March. But then as people started to come, come kind of like adjust and adapt by June, it, things were busy again. And, um, and I've been getting now new clients ever since, which honestly surprised me a little bit. I'm like, okay, I'm thrilled that people want to jump in and start doing program evaluation work in the midst of a pandemic. But I think part of it may be people are realizing, I don't know what to do. And boy, if I had some data, I would have a little bit more information about what to do. (laughs) So it helps chart a path. Yeah, definitely. I, 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 I feel the same way that it has slowed some people down to the point of like, well, let's hold off from doing evaluation for the foreseeable future. But others have really like latched on to this as as an opportunity that works for them. And so mm-hmm. I, I, it'll be really interesting to see if anybody does any sort of like analysis to find out like what are the organizations that were able to to work within this pandemic and who wasn't to think right. about, you know, who, who it was and how, how are we sharing our services in an equitable way. Right. Well, I just posted um, a blog post all about one of my clients and for all how they've been able to navigate through the pandemic. They provide in school programs around STEM Connect and all things STEM. They were really able to use the data they had and quickly adapt to having programs that could then be transitioned to being virtual and continue to support the schools. And in part of speaking with the executive director, Elaine, she shared with me how, you know, they quickly did a survey with all the volunteers and all of the teachers and how can we support you and what can we be doing? We can't bring the materials anymore into a classroom because there's no classroom to go into, right? 
but we can create these individual kits that families can pick up at the school, you know, wearing masks and, and being safe. But they then were able to continue the program online and the volunteers were able to come into the classroom virtually and continue the program. But they're not a current client anymore. They're one of my clients that I worked with and helped to build a culture of evaluation. So now everything that they do is grounded in data. Speaking of a culture of evaluation, I'm really excited for your new book that's coming out on nonprofits and building that culture. You want to speak a little bit more about that book that's coming out? Sure, you bet. So it's called Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. And then the subtitle, <laughs> Get Your Data, Show Your Impact, and Improve Your Program. So I know, a, long a very long title, but we had to get it all in there. You have to have um, a subtitle. Like you have to Nobody have has books without subtitles these days. That's right. That's right. It's not out quite yet. It should be out by the end of this year, hopefully sooner. Fingers crossed. <laughs> It'll be sooner. But the book is really for the non-evaluator to really help them understand how to do program evaluation at a very basic level, really to make it accessible. You know, so often when I meet with clients, they feel overwhelmed or like, I can't do this. I don't, I don't know where to, and I'm like, well, I'm just going to teach you how to start. I'm going to be your evaluation guide and you're the content expert and we're going to build these skills. So eventually you're, you're not going to need me anymore. So they don't, I'm often brought in because they need to show data to demonstrate impact to their funders, right? But really it's like, I, they don't know or they don't realize I'm gonna transform their whole organizational culture. So the book really delves into how do you build a culture of evaluation, like that first part before you even start creating the plan. And then what are the core elements of your plan Right. And then I do a chapter about how to create realistic surveys and how to manage your program data. And I talk about surveys at a very, very basic level. Right. I know a lot of us, we need that technical training for the more complicated pieces. So I'm not trying to create people into evaluators, but I am trying to cultivate people to have evaluative thinking and be able to do things at a very basic level. So they're using data. So the book just really walks through that process from beginning to end all the way through reporting. And then of course, how to use your data. It articulates a lot of the really common pitfalls that I think nonprofits come against that, do that doesn't allow them then to move forward or understand how to do program evaluation in a way that's realistic and meaningful to them. So that's the key, right? So <laughs> I'm laughing because I just think about the number of organizations I've met with and when I first meet with them, they kind of hang their heads in shame and share with me that they decided they should do a survey so they did, and now they have 500 surveys in a filing cabinet somewhere that nobody has the skills or time to analyze. Mm. Like, they just kind of, like, well, let's just do this because we should. Right. Well, no, let's, let's step back and plan it and think through what are you going to use? Have you defined your measurable outcomes? Do you know what you're trying to get to? What difference are you trying to make? And then you craft your survey around that. Right. So it's a lot of those kinds of concepts. So, yeah, that's a lot of what the book is about. Ironically, it started as a book really for evaluators and non-evaluators before I connected with this current publisher. It started focusing on just creating the plan, just a process of how do you create a plan and really build that culture of evaluation alongside building the plan. And then I got introduced to this publisher and they're like, we love this idea, but, but can you make it longer? <laughs> talk about these things too. So I chained myself to my desk for about six months and um, hammered that out. That sounds awesome. I'd, I'd love to talk more about the process in a bit, but I'm wondering, well, first, is the book more for organizations who want to do it on their own, do the evaluation process th themselves, or to be prepared for when an evaluator comes in to work with that evaluator? I think both, because it really helps them to do evaluation at a very basic level. But throughout the book, I'm like, and if you want to do you know, fill in the blank, pre-post surveys, if you want to do focus groups, if, you know, depending on different methodologies, I suggest you hire an outside expert for these pieces, you know. So it's really, when I come into organizations, I find people who are more skilled than they realize, you know, already have kind of the natural aptitude in terms of doing evaluation work and they can be trained. But then other organizations who really need that outside expert, the technical expertise. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not like here, now you are an evaluator after you've read this book. <laughs> it's more of at a very basic level, this is what you can be doing. I mean, I don't know if you've experienced this, but I've definitely worked with organizations who aren't 
even at a place that they are consistently tracking participation in their programs. Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Like at a very basic, basic level. So it kind of, there's a whole chapter dedicated to the case for spreadsheets and the case for database solutions and how do you decide. So those kinds of questions, helping them to understand how to navigate, how to at least get started and doing program evaluation work. That sounds like a very much needed book for, for nonprofits. I can imagine, I so. um, based on your experience working with new organizations, it would probably be helpful to maybe second book in the future if you ever decide to go through this process <laughs> again. But thinking about like how to help evaluators work with first-time clients because mm. there are so many pitfalls that, yeah, like, you know, they're not tracking the data you thought they would be tracking. Or they said, oh, yeah, we have that data. And then you get the data and it is just a mess. of how they're tracking it. Yeah, it's a mess. And, you know, there's a book, and I, if I can recall correctly, it's something on, like, project management by, I think it's Russ Eft and Laura Levitin, I think, and some others. And it's really great. So it highlights a few of those things that you might think of, not think about, like, the client having that, that information and stuff. But I wish, I wish there were just a better hand, you know, guide and tutorial and maybe checklist of, like, make sure you have this information before you proceed. Because mm -hmm. I forget about that with my long-term clients uh, who are just, I've, you know, we, the assumptions have been met and I just assume, oh, all my other clients will have all that information too. Right. Right. And I, I think you're right. I think a lot of what happens is organizations are chasing down and gathering the data that their funders are requiring them to gather. And they're not slowing down and thinking about, well, what do we really need to understand if we're making the difference we think we're making? So I think that's where they, we come across these, you know, sometimes chaotic ways that they're tracking data because they're just trying to keep up with what's being required of them. They might not have the, the skills yet of how to actually like manage a, a database and put things in an Excel spreadsheet. Not to mention like the funders add to the problem by requiring the information in very different ways sometimes. And, mm -hmm. and I get why they do what they do, but for the individual organization who might have multiple funders they need to report back to, oh, it's That's just awful. really rough for them, right? So when I work with organizations who have multiple funders like that, we sit down and create a plan that often evolves into, that includes either a logic model or a theory of change, customize it depending on what I think the organization needs and quite frankly, what they're going to use. You know, I really come from that school of thought, you know, Michael Quinn Patton's work around really look at what they're going to use. If they're not going to use it, don't collect it. And when I would sit down and go through all their current like intake forms with one organization in particular, that's what I ask them every time. Do you need it for a funder requirement? And do you need it to help you drive program planning? And if you don't, stop gathering it. Because they were gathering like, oh man, they were in spreadsheet hell. Excuse my, life. but it was like, what? And even, and that was a big reason why they brought me in too. They were like, we don't know what to do with all of this. So it was really going through and documenting and analyzing what they were currently doing and looking at what they needed to retain from that and what they could build on. So it was really useful, a good, pro a good system that they can use. I can imagine there's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy coming on with all of that, right? Uh, it's like, we've been collecting it for years. Why would we stop now? We've already put so much time and effort into this. I'm curious how that works out. But I'm actually also curious, you, you said you either have them do a theory of change or a logic model. And I'm curious, like, what are some of the organizational characteristics or needs that would lead you to choose one versus the other? Oh, man, that's such a great question. Let's see. Do we have enough time for that? Let me think that through. So... Here's, here's what I've discovered with logic models and theory of change. Sometimes when I meet with an organization and I say the word logic model, like they get this face of absolute disgust, like just like, oh, don't make me go through that process again. And usually that was based on a previous bad experience where many, many hours was, were spent creating a logic model that they may or may not use or buy into or, you know, you know fill in the blank. So some people bring that in with them. So I actually have changed the name of it a little bit called an impact model is what I created. And the impact model, and I talk about this a lot in the book as well, because I want people to be able to do these. And this is why, even though the book is intended for non-evaluators, I feel like evaluators may find this of interest of how you can develop an impact model. So the key characteristics of an impact model is to take the core 
core different components from a logic model or from a theory of change and put them on one page. And I really look at what's, what's going to resonate with this organization. What are they talking about a lot? What terms are they using a lot? If they use the term objective a lot, we probably need to then introduce that into the model. If they're using, or they don't really like the word output or input at all, like they're like, I, we don't use that, we don't need it, then we're not gonna put that in there. You know? And so once we get the content in that really will visually summarize what the program does and what change is expected as a result, right? And then I make sure to treat it, I learned a lot of this from Stephanie Evergreen, right? The visualization piece, um, one of my favorite books. I learned so much then of how to use visualization to communicate different key messages, right? So for in for all their STEM Connect program, we use their brand colors and it was a linear equation of where we showed volunteers plus, you know, the um, teachers equals these student outcomes. So we literally put it in a linear equation because it lines with it being a STEM program. That's just one example. But I want it to be something that reflects their culture, which is why we spend a lot of time looking at how can we lay it out in a way that's going to resonate with them, like just literally the mechanics, the visuals, what components, like I was saying before, will really resonate with the organization, and, and then colors. Put it in their brand colors and put their logo on it. And more, more times than not, um, organizations I've worked with have then put that up in their meeting room as kind of like, this is our guiding light. This is what we've created together. It's not something an outsider has come in and created and imposed on us. Mm-hmm. It's something I've created with them reflecting what they're already doing. So I hope that answers your question. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. I, I was uh, talking with the graduate student and new evaluator, TIG. They have a book club, a journal book club, and they, they were talking about uh, a study that uh, colleagues of mine at Claremont Graduate University, Tarek Azam, Natalie Jones, Sierra Page, and others did on logic models and, you know, the visual, enhancing the visual effectiveness of it is, you know, really helpful for people understanding logic models. At least that's what we found, but they wanted to talk about that. And everything you just said, it came up as questions of like, you know, how do we make sure it gets used? And I think that that is so key of bringing them into the process, right? Like it's a big problem with the study we did just because we can't do everything with it, but like we just presented them a logic model. Of course, they're not going to feel any sense of ownership over it. And having it as something that they've built with you or built in collaboration with you type thing. It's so cool to hear that. That means that they're sharing it and putting it on their website, putting it out there for the world. Because, yeah, a lot of times I don't see that on people's websites. And when I see it, it's like, ooh, they care about evaluation. Mm-hmm. I think really aligning it to the brand in a simple way, as simple as even their colors and their logo helps them like, oh, this is a part of our culture. Mm-hmm. This isn't just like a table with like the cookie cutter components that we see in logic models, right? It's really customized to what we do. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the log frame format of a logic model. I, I tell my students never, I never want to see a table format of your logic model. It shows that you haven't put much thought into it. Well, I did actually in the book go through a traditional linear logic model format because I have heard for some, I don't work very much on federal grants, but my understanding is for some federal grants, they do require that kind of format. Mm. So that's in there, but I do then say, but actually what you can do, (laughs) and um, really the key is to visually summarize what your program does on one page, something, yeah. So yeah, I appreciate that. And that's really interesting to hear that they found similar results in terms of how people felt about logic models. Mm -hmm. So what do you think is the biggest concern or problem or issue, whatever word we want to use, that nonprofits have when it comes to evaluation? I think kind of going back to what we said, a lot of people come into doing program evaluation work because it's driven or mandated by their funder. So one of the things that I've really seen evolve over time is organizations are on the spectrum of culture of compliance to culture of learning, okay? And when they're in a culture of compliance, they're really focused on the mandated, um, how funders have mandated that they have to gather data and therefore bring in a program evaluator who can help you gather those data. So it's all driven by money. But when it's driven by learning, it's a different mindset, right? So when I have organizations that do have like multiple funders, I'm like, well, let's create an evaluation plan that takes into consideration all of the different requirements, but that truly is focused on you. And then when they ask for or require for you to fill in that part in the grant proposal of 
you know, how are you going to evaluate your program or how are you going to measure success? Tell them you're going to attach your evaluation plan. And more often than not, funders are like, wow, wait, what? You have an evaluation plan? That's fantastic. Sure, that suffices. Not always. Not always. Some of them still want what they need in the, in the little boxes. But more often than not, funders are very happy that an organization, you know, is building from an evaluation plan that they have. So, you know, that way that they're, they're the leader in what's being gathered rather than it being mandated and the relation, it just changes the relationship of how, why the data are being collected. And then once I think they start to really see the value in gathering the data to help them understand what's working and not working in their programs, they get more motivated to continue that and it changes their culture. And probably changes changes also to culture of improvement, right? Not a culture of, okay, we figured it out. It's all done. We don't have to change the program anymore, but constant revision and refinement and thinking about how we can best meet the, the needs of whoever our participants are in their varied needs and so on. Yeah. You know, I have a fun story to share with you about a client, um, the Northwest Housing Alternatives. We had such a good experience working together. The program director and I did a concept paper together and really looking at, you know, what were the key pieces of what, what was it like before they had evaluation and what was it like after? So that was something that we kind of went through and comparing, contrasting. And the hope was for other organizations similar to theirs could look at that and understand the value of integrating program evaluation into their work. I'll give you an example. So when I worked with them, what one of the things that Julia said, Julia Doty is the program director, I want to read this to you. She said the data and this is from the concept paper, the data helped us secure two of our largest grants to date. And even though increasing our grant funding was the primary reason we started the process. Of course, um, the real, of course, the real success is our ongoing ability to gather data that is relevant to our work and using it continually to improve our program. So one of the things we did, we did a lot of the things, but one of the things that I really challenged them on is if the goal of your resident services program, where they had six different residence coordinators going into 32 different properties across Oregon, right? All affordable housing, right? And they were providing a range of like 30 plus different services from eviction prevention to social events, to mental health services, to youth engagement, like, like the gamut, right? And there wasn't really a plan necessarily always when they were going into those buildings once a week. It was, you know, more reactive or more what they think, right? We know where this is going. So I said, well, if your goal is to promote housing stability, how do you know you're doing that? <laughs> and they were like, we, I, isn't that why you're here? I don't know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we talked a lot about like, well, then we really got into, and I can share this with you. I don't have it on a website, but there's this graphic I'm holding up right now that came out of our evaluation planning session where there was this continuum of what services really serve people that are at low risk of losing housing versus high risk of losing housing, right? So low risk of housing may be events like social events, high risk of losing housing, maybe services like eviction prevention. They're, and they're just a ton of different services that they provide. So when we looked at it through that lens, how, what can we be gathering on a regular basis to understand if they are in fact meeting their goal? Besides the obvious of doing surveys with residents and you know, all of the different stakeholders, but really to understand what was working and not working on a regular basis, I suggested we developed a housing stability assessment where every three or four times they meet with the resident, they're logging in and we developed a rubric and we did the whole inter-rater reliability and all of those pieces, right? Um, it's so much fun. <laughs> so much fun. But really getting into the weeds of like, what does it mean? Why are you giving this person a one? I would have given this person a two, right? And so really refining what that rubric would look like. And so then um, they got to a point where in their database, it prompts them to rate them. I think now they've changed it to every five times. So before they go in the building, they could print off a report, see what activities they've been doing see what the ratings are of the different people that are in that building, make a plan based on the data before they even go in. So it's, they've all said it makes it so much more efficient for them. They, you know, they're not just operating from the gut. They're not just operating like, here's what I think we're going to do. It's not reactive of people in crisis, right? They're able to like, before they go in the building, based on the data, 
create a plan of what they're going to do that day. And that to me is a huge success and so exciting. That so that's does an example. Exciting. Yeah. So that's an example of um, one nonprofit of how they, um, and they're not my client anymore. You know, they've, they've graduated out of needing me. They've built their culture of evaluation so much. So they actually created an internal evaluator position that they're now hiring for. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That sounds like the like ultimate success story that they no longer lead you and they've like continued the building their evaluation capacity and providing specific roles for that. That sounds so cool. Yeah, thank you. It, it, it is. It was so exciting to see them evolve. When I was first came in, it was like, well, we just we need data, you know, to get the money. And I was just I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that right. was like, essentially the sentiment. I'm like, OK, well, what you don't owe. <laughs> And the other thing we did, and I don't know, I'd be curious to know how often you see this occur, but we did a literature review on how housing stability is defined and how other organizations are measuring it, if they're measuring it. And that really helped to provide a springboard to develop the assessment piece we created. I don't know how often you see literature reviews used, but boy, I'll tell you, I think that they're gold. Oh, no, I totally agree. I mean, I come from like the theory driven evaluation approach that really emphasizes bringing in social science literature into what you're doing. And when doing the program theory approach that you're building in based on what other similar programs are doing as well um, to help develop that program theory. Uh, one example, I, I didn't start this, but I continued the work that this team was doing. We, I worked with the client. They'd been working with my boss for like five years already. I came in, worked with them for another five years. So it was a long-term client, but somewhere in those first five years, they did a lit review on how attendance is measured because it's not just attendance, right? There are a multitude of ways we could think about it. We could think about it in terms of the number of days attended. We can think about it as the number of months they've persisted. We can think about it as the intensity of how frequently they attend. So for instance, this came about because the organization we were working with was like, well, we had this student for a full semester attend every single day and then for a full semester never attend. And it looks like they had half attendance. And and yeah, they did in both our duration and the like the months attended measures that we had, but they had full on intensity when they were there, you know, and maybe they just left the state, you know, it's, and it's hard to, it's hard to think about all the, the measures. And so like we added that as a new measure. And then by the time I was leaving, I was starting to contemplate, but I don't think it ever came to fruition thinking about how we capture that dropout as, as another measure of attendance. And I, I was just, kind of uh, swamped with other things at the time, but um, started to think about that. And that came from primarily a lit review and then thinking about like doing more research as well. Like, so I always try to think about what kind of research I can build in as well, right? To share what lessons learned we've had with other like programs. Um, So like we did papers and stuff on like, what are the predictors of attendance in after school programs? Right. That's fantastic. And see, that's the kind of work where, you know, when I work with an organization and we're getting ready to create the data collection tools and we've created the plan and I'm like, this is an area that I bet someone else has already created something similar to this. So let's do a lit review and find it rather than trying to create something new. Absolutely. Well, I think it's part of good planning, right? Like I'm betting and I'm curious what you think. Do you do you get a lot of people who, um, when you say like, let's, let's hold off and let's, let's get through the planning part first, who are like, no, 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 we got to go, go, go. Right. And, and showing them the power of pausing and so that they can build a good plan and hopefully be more efficient in the future. Like, is that, is that a concern that comes up with, with your clients? Um, yeah, for some clients, you know, they, I lay it out for them because we work, I work in phases. Phase one is the plan. Phase two is implementation and they're at different costs price points because we don't know how much the plan is going to cost to implement until we create the plan. Right. But I think that, um, repeat the question one more time. Well, I'm just wondering, do you get any kind of hesitancy to do the planning part? Because they're like, like the, the housing stability that you were talking about, like they were just going in and just reacting because they probably felt overwhelmed. Right. Well, I have a really, that's a great question. Thanks for repeating it. I have a very specific framework. It's on my website of where I walk through. Here's phase one that includes discovery and creating the plan. And then here's phase two, and that's implementation with all the things, creating data collection tools, analyzing the data, managing all of those things you would think would be in there. Phase three is, is basically a coaching component on how do you use the data to support 
development, how do you use it to support program planning, and how do you effectively communicate it? How do you close the communication loop, right? Because I don't think it's enough to just send out even a summary report, right? What your board is going to want to read is different from what your participants who provided the data, right? I mean, how many times have you and I probably filled out a survey and we have no idea what happened with our feedback? It's annoying. So I'm like, close the feedback loop, do a little one pager back to all of the people that participated in your program and did the survey and say, hey, thanks for completing the survey. Here's what we learned. Here's what went really well, and here's what we're going to change based on your feedback. Just an easy one-pager that goes out to everybody or however they want to communicate it. So I think that's what buys people in is they see that kind of really succinct process. The plan doesn't always include a literature review. It depends on the organization and their needs, and we don't know that until we get into the planning piece. Mm -hmm. But uh, the only time I've gotten pushback on the planning piece is people are on a tight timeline. They have a funder report due. And they want to like be done in two weeks. And honestly, for some of those folks, I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't change the quality of my work to match what you're trying to accomplish. So, but if you really want to, for next time, be a little, you know, really thoughtful around the evaluation work, then yeah, why don't we work together? But that doesn't happen very often. Generally, people are pretty happy with the planning part. And it, the planning part takes three to six months because taking in feedback from all the different key stakeholders takes time. So in terms of, it sounds like you have like an organizational goal to graduate your clients. Is, are these phases kind of one-off phases that they get through and then it's kind of like graduation or do you do the phases iteratively until they feel like they're ready to move on and continue without your assistance? Wow, such a great question. It tends to be just the one time through um, I like for them to choose one program that we focus on because I'm like, I'm going to teach you how to do this and then you could scale it to your other programs and they do. So I tend to work with organizations, you know, it can range a year, sometimes two years where I take them through the process and give them the deep capacity building and help them with the skills. Sometimes organizations continue to use me for the data analysis and compiling a report. Mm. It kind of depends on how complex the data sets are that they're going to be working with. But more times than not, they work, you know, through those three phases and then, yeah, they graduate. So then how in-depth are you working with clients? Like how many clients do you have? Because it sounds like you're, you're really hands-on with them. And it feels like if I, you know, thinking through it, like you maybe only have a couple clients at a time because you are really working with them. Mm-hmm pretty in-depth. It, it ranges and it depends on the phase that they're in. You know, like I have a couple clients now that because I do the coaching phase for about a year, meeting monthly, you know, which is much more hands off because I'm, it's really holding them accountable to implement as we had intended. And then if they run across problems, you know, then I'm, they know I'm going to be talking to them <laughs> in a month. But I tend to, to take in anywhere from three to six or seven clients at a time. But for that first phase, yeah, I wouldn't do more than three clients at a time on that first phase because it is very time intensive. It's very um, methodical of how we work through it together. And it is very hands-on. You're right. Are you, do you have, do you have, I haven't looked at your website thoroughly enough. Do you have other people on your team that work with you? I I have subcontractors that work with me. Yeah. So I can work with them on um, making sure that we are getting everybody's needs met. Yeah. And then I just have one more logistic question. Cause like this, this model of thinking about how to do evaluation, like really resonates with me of, you know, mm-hmm. building capacity while you're doing the evaluation process. Do, do you get pushback on like the budget for this type of work? Cause mm-hmm. I do. Okay. Yeah. So it I has do. to take a certain type of client, right. That wants to work with you. Yeah. But then I break it down. I'm like, well, let's talk about the return on your investment. How long have you been trying to do this for? And more often than not, I have clients that that move through this, you know, they're able, like I, that quote I read from Julia, they're, the data helped them secure two of their largest grants to date, you know, like, so I share that with clients ahead of time, you know, that there is a big investment on the front end of this, but once you have this in place and everyone's doing it, it's, you're going to be able to raise more money. I don't like commit to that in writing, but my experience has been with other clients, that's what their experience has been. They have, in fact, increased the amount of funding that they're getting. In fact, I should show you, because I don't, I want to quote it exactly. There's one blog I did on called the intersection of fundraising and program evaluation. 
And one of my clients, Portland Homeless Family Solutions, they are one of the four clients that are included in my book. So I wanted to interview her and get more information on where they're at now because we worked together back in 2013. One of the things she said to me that I just, you know, Dana, I really didn't take into consideration or I guess for my own evaluation, evaluating my own work, connect a lot with clients to see how it impacted their fundraising because what I cared about them was, you know, using it for program improvement and learning. <laughs> so this blog post, um, one of the things the executive director there said to me, Brandy Tech, she said, because we had program evaluation system in place, our annual fundraising from foundations increased to 677%. And annual fundraising from individual donors increased by 753%. Jaw drop. If you all can wow. see me, you see my jaw drop. <laughs> um, that blew me away, right? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and that interview then prompted me to write that blog post because I was like, I am very focused on creating a culture of learning right? It's not a culture of like, how much money can we get? But the reality is when you can accurately evaluate your programs and communicate that with the funding community, they're going to likely be more likely to financially support your cause. And that interview, I think that was just like last year when I interviewed her. And um, yeah, it just blew me away because the work we did is, was in 2013. So since the time, that time, they've really rounded out and built out their program evaluation systems. It makes me think of, um, so I, like I said, I, I, I used to work with the after school programs a lot and in the state of California, they would get, they'd have to report back to the state for the after school division and the you know Department of Ed or whatever. The legislation, le legislation, yeah, changed in that they required after school programs to report two things. One, their attendance, whatever. They'd always been doing that. But before it had been test scores and things like that, they dropped that and had people report back on their evaluation plans every year. Oh, wow. So like they had to demonstrate they were going through, they're calling a continuous quality improvement cycle, which is evaluation, right? And those were the two things that they had to start reporting. And I'm really curious wow. based on like every, you know, everything you just said, I'm like, I wonder now that it's been ooh, maybe four years by now of that, like how, how has that changed and shifted the, the quality of the after school programming in the state and, you know, how satisfied students are with the programming and whether that's actually leading to the impacts that, after school programs are hoping to achieve based on everything you've just said as kind of like a case example. Yeah. Like how is that, how are they using the data to really improve and are they improving? And I think that's fantastic mm -hmm. and really having, and I hope they went through and did it collaboratively because that's what I see makes all the difference. Like if you make a plan and you don't have the people that are going to be gathering the data involved with creating that plan and then the data collection tools that could stop right there, the process right there. You know, well, it's the, really program. Getting, the program yeah. is responsible for doing the planning and evaluation components, right? That's, so that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, hopefully they have either internal or external evaluators working with them and, you know, that they're, they have the capacity to do it themselves if they are doing it themselves. But I, I thought it was so fascinating when they were doing that because that was what we would do with our clients already. And so when they shifted that, I was like, oh, we are ready to pivot to this so quickly, like so ready because this is how we've already been doing it and how evaluation really should be done. It shouldn't be just numbers and impacts that may or may not make sense for right. that particular program. Right, right. It needs to make sense. It needs to resonate, right? And that's why I really appreciate that, you know, collaborative approach of like, well, what do you think is going to change? Let's talk about that. All of you in the room, every voice here matters. What do you think is going to change? Yeah. So I wanted to pivot to the talking about music a little bit. Is there anything oh, yeah. else you want to share about nonprofits before we do that? And, and culture of evaluation and all this stuff? Yeah, let me look at my notes here. I think that we kind of covered what I wanted to plug in about. Yeah, yeah I think we covered it. I really love the way you think about your business. Um, oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. So. And see, that's where I like that. When I wrote this book, like I said, it was in, really intended for evaluators and non-evaluators who were have that propensity to wanting to be program evaluators. So it has that whole thought process of that phase one of what I do is documented in the book of like, here's what you do, gather information from everybody individually, and then synthesize it and look at where people agree, where they don't agree. Oh, here's one other important point, Dana, tell me if you've seen this before. Often what I see written on paper, like in grant proposals, and then I get 
the open-ended surveys from the program staff telling me what's happening, they don't match. <laughs> right? What the grant writer is putting in doesn't match what the program staff say is happening. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the role, I feel like, as an evaluator of resolving that, of like only put in the grant proposal what is actually happening or what you intend to have happen so that everyone's on the same page. So that's where one of the big divides I saw early on in my consulting career between program staff and fundraising staff of making sure that they are on the same page, literally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have definitely seen the same thing where they're clearly not on the same page. It's, they just have that one person who's doing the fundraising who reports perhaps like to the executive director, but there's no communication with the programmatic staff at all. And yeah, we had a lot of issues with that of, of thinking about how, you know, you said you're going to do this. You're not collecting any data to support what you said you were going to do. Like, okay, you just said you're doing this. Like, let's, let's put that in the evaluation plan. And actually it took, I don't know, one, one of the programs I worked with, it took a while before, like I would, they were finally asking us to help for, with reporting for their grants. And it's like, sure. Yeah, we can help with that. No problem. And then we finally get to look at the grants that they've been reporting back to for years and realize, I don't know what, what you'd been doing because they don't they don't align very well like let's think about this and restructure our evaluation plans to align with this and even we hadn't been doing it for a while because we assumed that they didn't ask us for help and we just kind of assumed that they were doing it just fine and you just hit on a word that i that really resonates with me and that's alignment right mm -hmm. one of the things i'll say is we align our bodies so they work better by going to the chiropractor or doing yoga. We align our cars so they don't veer off to the right or the left, <laughs> right? So we have to align our programs so that what outcomes are being you know, discussed are aligned across all departments in the organization so that alignment is clear. And that's what helps to drive what to gather. And then you have what you need to report out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that word. So I want to talk about music. Uh, okay. I've been I've been excited because I'll preface this by saying I've been reading the oral histories from you know the old time evaluators in our field and in oh, some of the autobiographical autobiographical new directions for evaluation volumes. There's two of them. I don't recall Williams. I don't know his first name. On just ones like Twenty Nine Lives of Evaluators or something. Yeah, like I know that. what you're talking about. I think I have yeah. it over there on my shelf. <laughs> Yeah, it's really good. I'm, I'm like loving getting to know the people that, you know, I may not ever be able to meet because they're no longer with us or just, you know, they're so old that they're not really coming to AEA anymore or whatever. It's just been lovely to get to know them a little bit better, especially since I read their articles so much. But you know, I was so struck by how many of them have a, a music background that was big enough in their lives that they talked about as part of their autobiographies and sometimes these like three or four pages that they had available especially in the new directions and it was so critical to them so really interesting because we're also both have a music background I'd love to hear about yours mine I, I actually got my bachelor's of, of uh, arts in music education oh I, really I never thought play? I was going into eval I thought I was going to be a band director high school band director yeah, I played uh, percussion. That was my main instrument. Oh, nice. I also played clarinet and bass clarinet. And as a music education major, I, I learned how to play all of them at a rudimentary level, I should say. I cannot play very much anymore, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's fantastic. And it's really interesting to me that so many of the evaluators, the, the 29 Lives, that they talk about having a connection to music. I actually thought I was going to be a rock star. <laughs> that was my plan. I started writing music at a young age, like, you know, rock and roll songs and played in bands. And I also went to music school. Uh, I didn't last there very long. There was something about studying something I love to do all the time made me not love it as much. So I transferred and got my undergraduate degree in psychology, which was fantastic. But, but I think that with music, you know, at least for composing, I mean, I play piano and guitar, mostly piano. And what happens, you know, when I'm composing is I'm so in, I'm so present, like there's no room for any thinking of yesterday or tomorrow or anything. It's like one of those activities, which most creative, creative activities are, I think, allows me to just be so very present. And I can feel like the my brain just so focused, everything, you know, my heart, mind, body, spirit, everything is immersed in whatever I'm writing. But I find that interestingly, I find the same thing happens when I really get into 
analyzing some data and writing a report. Mm, that same. same kind of like immersive whole body experience that flow, you know, that happens. Well, that, that that word right there, flow, that's actually the theory that got me into psychology and that got me to Claremont Graduate University because uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who, you know, coined the term, wrote the book on flow, he's, he was a professor there. I think he just retired a year or two ago, but uh, that's what got me into it. I never, again, never thought eval was my, the where I was going. It was that flow experience. And same thing, I st- starting to study it more, uh, full-time even. I don't, I don't even know if it was just the studying of it, but just like that was all I was doing was just music, music, music and performing for a grade. Like I just kind of got done with it. Yeah. It takes the fun out of it when it's being graded. <laughs> but I right. love how you also get into that flow state with like report writing data analysis. I am the, such the same way. Like that is my favorite I, I thought I was going into research, not evaluation, but that is my favorite component of it is like really getting into the dirt, into the data and, you know, seeing what it says and, and trying to communicate it in a way that makes sense. It happens to me too when I'm working on a client's impact model, when I'm starting, when I've gotten through all of the discovery, right? I've gotten through reading and I feel like I understand their, the mechanics of their program. And then I'm looking at what people actually said about the program and I've met with the core team and I now have all of these pieces and I get into that flow of like, okay, what is the program about and what difference are they expecting it to make? Like what goes on the paper? Because one page is not a lot of room, right? To right. communicate that. So, and I think that also has the same kind of flow for me that composing has. So why do you think that other evaluators might have perhaps gotten into evaluation after music or their music background resonates for them when they start thinking about how they got into evaluation or how they do evaluation? What do you, what do you think is going on there? Of the connection between the two? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that flow, you know, that recognition of the flow happens in both evaluation work and those capacities that we just talked about. And I think it, it, it lights up that part of the brain that you get into when you're playing music and you're in that flow, like in that immersive experience. And I think the difference is, though, with program evaluation, well, there are more job opportunities. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, right? And, you know, it's, it's a very different experience, but I think that it's still an immersive experience because you're creating something, whether it's an impact model or a song or, you know, whatever it might be, there's, there's some creative energy, I think, that comes from that process. Yeah, I think because... Another group of people I noticed had more of a scientific background. They came in through more of a science route. And I kind of wonder if it's just like this, this alignment between art and science, right? That evaluation is a science. I, at least I firmly believe that. But there's an art to it. And, and just like I think there's an art to doing good research, right? It's not just a here's a boilerplate research study and here's how you do it. Like there's a lot of thinking that goes involved and making sure that you're, you know, reducing the threats to internal validity, making sure it's externally valid, that Mm -hmm. it's going to work in the context that you're working with, all these things. I've been starting to think that, you know, it's just just the blending of the art and science of what we do. I I agree with all of that. I think there is a real blend. I remember even being in the band where I got my degree in psychology, but I minored in music. And the band I played in, almost everybody in that band was either a computer science major or, you know, something along those lines. Like, why are there so many technology people in this? You know, I think it's just that still comes back to that experience of the flow, of the alignment, of the people, I think, crave immersive experiences. You know, anything that can keep us in the present and not ruminating about the past or like wondering about the future, you know, especially now, right? Especially now. Yeah. I think it really, you know, I'm not sure of why that connection is there. Maybe that's a good study for someone to explore. Definitely. (laughs) But I think that it's worth noting that, you know, that, that creative process, I think plays a role in how we approach music and how we approach program evaluation. So you write songs that's my, that was my main thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So how, like, what is your songwriting process? That was one thing I can never get myself into. <laughs> I can never figure it out of how to write a freaking song. <laughs> Let's see here. How do I deconstruct my songwriting process? Sometimes a song just comes on my head as if it's already been written. So I go to the piano and I play it and I write it out like full, it's fully formed. 
Other times, the general sense of the melody or concept comes through for me. And then I go to the piano and just start playing chords to see what's going to work and start making notes, <laughs> making notes. Literally, I was thinking <laughs> words, but yeah, notes yep. too. Um, then, you know, I think my songwriting process can just vary. I think in the case for the upcoming plenary session, it was very directive in that, you know, I'm going to write on the theme of shine your light. That's what I want to write about. I did a lot of reading around the Heart Math Institute, mm -hmm. you know, since Amy White talked about that's where the inspiration for the theme came from. So I wanted to more deeply understand what they had to say about, you know, they don't, they're not focused on evaluation. They're focused on um, the role the heart plays in human performance and talking about and the research that they've done in that area, I thought was really interesting, not surprising, but interesting. Mm -hmm. So I really wanted to write a song that aligned to both uh, this concept of how we shine our light, but also reflecting what Amy had to say, which I thought was so beautiful around as evaluators, you know, our role can be to shine a light and to reveal a truth that would otherwise go unknown, right? And that part of our role as program evaluators is to shine that light in a gentle way, in a not in a like flashlight way, but in this more of like a gradual light, showing like these areas that our clients or you know whoever is using the data would otherwise not see. And once they can see it, then they're like, oh, light bulb moment, and they can use it and you know move forward with using that information. So really about like how what can we do in our role as program evaluators to improve the condition for others? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things we do do is like, well, have you thought about it this way? Or you know, the data are saying this, you know, or this is what I'm hearing in terms of you know how we should articulate your theory of change. And it's like this new concept for them of like in the 20 years or whatever they've been doing their program, they had never thought of it that way. So I think that the shining our light and the writing that song, it came pretty easily. You know, I, I was able to sit down and kind of just noodle with like, well, what style do I want this to be in? And how do I want this to sound? And, and it just really fell out, particularly the chorus. It just fell out pretty quickly. But what was really exciting, we had this fun idea to create some continuity since it is a virtual experience. Like, wouldn't it be fun if the other plenary session speakers did a little video that we can include in my plenary session on how they think their perspectives on the theme. So that way everyone in, in this opening plenary session will get to meet Talithia Williams, you know, Cherie Tang, Sammy Nunez, and Audrey Jordan before seeing them do their actual session, yeah, that was nice. really fun. That would be nice to get people to, to come to the others. I, I'm kind of curious how this will turn out because I know some of the other plenary sessions at like the main conference when we're in person may not always be highly attended. So it'll be nice to get a little preview mm. before, before we get in. And speaking of previews, we do have a little clip of, your, of, of the song that you created for the opening plenary. And so we're going to share a little sneak peek for that, that opening song for the opening session at AEA. So here it is. Many methodologies, strategies, illuminate a new way of thinking. We collaborate, coordinate, create a space to grow and learn. We are guides, we are teachers, we are leaders revealing the I really loved listening to your clip. Um, I loved the theme and how it was brought in and the music. I'm really excited to hear the rest of it. And thank you for sharing like the, the songwriting process for that. Cause that was actually going to be the question I was going to ask you on all of that. And I'm just, and you wanted to, I, I'm 
curious because we talked about this a little bit via email that this was a family effort in creating this. <laughs> it sure was. So my husband took on, put on a sound engineering hat and we sat all day and did the piano parts and then the vocal parts, you know, so we had the two different tracks. And then um, my 17 year old takes sound engineering as an elective at his high school, which I find fascinating. Yeah. So he's been through a year of that. And there were just a couple of spots where the vocals, you know, where the, the sound kind of just wavered a little bit differently. And so he fixed those. Huh. <laughs> he fixed those. And then the last part was I didn't record live because the audio quality just wouldn't have been as good. So, but we wanted to provide some clips of me just playing the piano uh, to include in the video. And so my younger son, my 13 year old got his like, you know, filming hat on and he was getting all these fun angles and reflecting on the bottom of the piano and just fun stuff where he he took a lot of clips of me just playing the piano oh that's so cool and are you, did you guys create the video or or like are people at AEA doing that AEA is going to actually do that which I'm really excited about yeah all of the clips are now done and in their hands and they're very capable and talented hands to stitch everything together I haven't seen it yet but I'm excited to see it come all together because it really is a mix of the song you know and then uh, the guest videos like the guest plenary session speakers and then a couple of different clips of my thinking around the theme in terms of and how it relates to program evaluation. Oh, wow. So we've got the spoken word and the songs and the stories, and it's really just meant to uh, bring in how this theme of how we shine our light ties to being a program evaluator and coming at it from multiple perspectives and lens. Well, I cannot wait to watch and listen to that. And by the time this comes out, it'll be about two weeks after this. So it'll be soon. I'm very excited. Yeah. I'm really excited about it. I'm curious, it. What, what are you excited about for the upcoming conference? I'm excited about just navigating the virtual experience as a whole. You know what I mean? I think that the platform they're using is Pathable, mm -hmm. where you can still network. You know, you can still get in there and, and reach out to different people and set up a time to get together. It's different than the casual bumping in them into them right. at, at break time, right? But it, it's still, um, I think, a really fascinating way to be able to connect with people. I think that I, I'm just excited to get in there and read about, I haven't read through all the sessions yet. I think that really getting into the schedule, I'm excited for both of the plenary sessions, you know, the other two that are coming up. I, after speaking with both Talithia Williams, very powerful speaker, and then the panel that's going to occur, these folks that wrote Measuring Love in the Journey for Justice, it's a brown paper. Mm. And it is incredible it's so it's just a beautiful piece and i'm really excited to hear what they have to say about their work well i'm, I'm looking forward to it have you used the pathable platform before i haven't have you i have not i'm kind of curious because technically all of the aea the apps in the past at least couple years have had like this networking possibility and either nobody has interacted with me on it or nobody just uses it um so like i'm i'm really i'm hoping that it becomes something that people are using uh, a lot because i would love to have this be a more i, I want to have conversations during this i don't want to sit at my computer by myself all day well that's the other thing dana that i'm really excited about right there's 120 sessions but we can watch them for up to three months right so i'm not feeling pressured to get to all the sessions that are going to be available. I more want to take advantage of the live networking or any live events mm. to participate in. I think I saw they're going to do a trivia event, which looks really fun. Oh. Just any opportunity to connect with other people is more of what I'm interested in. I'm sure I'll go to some of the sessions too, but like you and I'm sure other people, I, I can't imagine sitting in front of my computer all day, mm -hmm. right? That seems pretty daunting. But yeah, the fact that we have three months to watch all of the sessions, then I'll probably print out that schedule and kind of just check off all of the different things I want to go to. I mean, I'm going to get to see way more than I would have if it were in person. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, we can watch, we could technically watch all 120 because they're all being recorded. So that's right. That's lovely. Mm -hmm. And they're spreading that's out right. the business meeting. So hopefully everybody can attend their business meeting. I'm excited for ours. So very cool. 
Which and which one are you in? Which TIG? Yeah, so I'm uh, the research on evaluation TIG, but I am a member of a few others and I just never can attend. I mean, it's always just been there's the two time slots, so I could always only attend two at a time. So now I potentially could attend five, which I'm very That's amazing. About. Yeah, I'm also on the, um, the TIG for the nonprofits and foundations. They established a leadership council, I think a couple of years ago now. Hmm. And it's been fascinating to get more plugged into that TIG in that capacity because I've always just gotten you know the newsletters or you know the information and I was like I think I want to connect more and find out you know what I what I can offer or help with in that capacity and it's just been an incredible experience to get to know these folks that are all over the country. So I'm actually also on the TIG scam so I'm curious what you mean by leadership council are you referring to the chair and program chair or do they have a separate no. council? Ooh, okay. They created right isn't that brilliant yeah. so Susan Wolf and Ann Price came up with this idea because the goal was to increase membership engagement so they created I you know I should look I don't remember how many I think it's a six person leadership council that's kind of more advisory maybe role but we do meet monthly and we're a part of that conversation with the program chairs, you know, with the other more traditional groups. But yes, it's expanded the number of people I think involved at that level, but it's been really wonderful getting to know everybody on there. Oh, that's awesome. We have something informally similar. Uh, I, we had like a membership survey to find out what the membership wants from the TIG. And based on that, we started what I'm calling a working group, but it sounds kind of similar where we're thinking about what the TIG can be doing and just we meet monthly as opposed to the TIG like leadership meeting quarterly, but just to get together and talk about like, what should we be doing as a field? What kind of things and can we put together to help membership engagement and stuff like that? So we've had webinars and putting together resources on funding and all these things to hopefully help members get more involved with the field of the subfield, I should say, of research on evaluation or with the TIG itself. Right. That's right. awesome. That's exciting. So Shari, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners or anything upcoming and exciting you'd like to share? You know, I do want to share, and this might need to be plugged in when we were talking about the plenary session, but I want to talk about how it started because it's pretty funny. Mm, yeah. It started even before, because before COVID hit and it was going to be here in Portland, Oregon, and I had shared this like off the cuff idea. I'm like, I could do a formative songwriting session. So the, the vision was like a 10 minute thing of like, I'd write a song about things to do in Portland and it would like evolve into a sing-along. Hmm. And it, I'd be taking, you know, suggestions from the audience of what to sing about and incorporate that. And, and it would likely be a blues song because that's my favorite <laughs> thing to write. And so that evolved and that was going to move forward and then COVID hit. And then Amy and I spoke and I'm like, I can still do it. I can just be on the theme instead and longer. <laughs> so that's how we landed at a plenary session that integrates music is that originally it was going to be a formative songwriting session in Portland. That's so cool. It's pretty fun. Anything, yeah, this has been fantastic. Yeah. It's just we've covered like quite the gamut. Yeah, and it was nice to get to know you a little bit better. I mean, we, we follow yeah, each too. other on Twitter, but we hadn't met before this, so that was lovely. Yeah, agreed. It's really wonderful. I, I really appreciate being a guest today. Yeah, so one thing I like to do to, sh to, to end the podcast um, before we get into like contact and plug the book one more time, but what is something in evaluation that is giving you life right now? So um, I love that question. So I went over to my bookshelf and I grabbed two journals, The New Directions for Evaluation. And there are two I really enjoy in particular because what excites me is about building capacity and evaluation and seeing more and more program evaluators being able to work with other organizations to build capacity. So I love this journal, the organizational capacity to do and use evaluation. Um, the editors are Jay Bradley Cousins and Isabel Bourgeois. And I, one of the things I talk about when I've presented is I talk about on page 44, they talk about these drivers for evaluation and they really align with my experience, you know, program monitoring, outcome assessment. I mean, it's just, and they get into it and I'm like, yes, you're speaking my language. <laughs> I love this so much. I often, when I'm 
uh, with clients when we are phasing out and moving into coaching, I'll, I'll give this to them as a gift. So I get oh, wow. really excited. <laughs> yeah, I really like it. <laughs> I really get excited about this concept of like, how do we motivate people to understand that they could do program evaluation, you know, at a, at a very basic level, right? You need technical expertise to do more of the more in-depth pieces, but it is accessible to anybody who wants to learn and gain those skills. So when I see more and more tools and conversations and opportunities arise, that just, that makes me super happy. Can you do me one for more favor and just remind us name of your book and when it's supposed to come out? So the name of my book is Nonprofit Program Evaluation Made Simple. Subtitle is Get Your Data, Show Your Impact, Improve Your Programs. And it is due to come out this year, hopefully before the AEA coming up at the end of the oh, month. Lovely. That's the hope. But if people would like to learn more information about it, there is a page about it on my website and there is a mailing list. If you want to sign up to be notified for when the book actually launches, I don't share lists, you know, solely for that purpose. Uh, you're welcome to sign up there and then you'll get, you'll be one of the first people to learn about it when it's out. Perfect. I will put all that information in our show notes. So if anybody wants to get in contact with you, how can they best find you? Best thing is just to email me at shari at evaluationintoaction.com. Perfect. Thank you so much, Shari. Thank you so much for your time today, Dan. I appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at evaluland.fireside.fm where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been Evaluland. Land.